Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Heterogeneity. 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 How should I say it, Luke? Heterogeneity. Heterogeneity. Since Pheasants Forever's 1982 beginnings and Quail Forever's 2005 beginnings, we've always evolved as a habitat organization at pace with the best science available to us. You know, if I think back to the early days of the organization, there's a lot of focus on planting food plots. And we evolved. Uh, we realized the importance of, of winter cover throughout uh, the northern reaches of the pheasant range. Um, and then we evolved into understanding really the number one limiting factor is nesting cover. But then we evolved again with the advent of quail and the understanding of it's not just nesting cover, it's that reproductive cover, interpollinator habitat, and brood cover, and, and you know, the, connecting back to the web of life, what's good for birds and bees is good for soil health and water quality. And, and that's kind of the premise of today's episode where we're going to talk about continuing evolution of the science of habitat conservation Enter heterogeneity, which, yes, I'm saying it over and over so I can pronounce it correctly because <laughs> I've, I've struggled with the word uh, as I've learned about it over the course of the last few weeks. Um, so here's the premise of heterogeneity. Grasslands are inherently dynamic in space and in time, and they're always evolving with frequent disturbance from fire and herbivores in a good situation they're always evolving as a consequence of human actions many remaining grasslands have become homogenous which has led to a re reduction in the ecosystem of a grassland's function meaning a loss in biodiversity a decrease in water quality benefits soil benefits and everything we're after is a wildlife habitat conservation mission. So you've, you've heard his, his voice saying the word heterogeneity. The featured guest for this particular episode is Luke Silverberg. He's a biologist with our organization. In, you're in um, Sleepy Eye area of Minnesota, aren't you? Is yeah, that? Sleepy Eye, um, 45 minutes south of the cities. And a uh, small little rural town, and it's a great place to be. Habitat's all over. People are excited. And so last year, uh, the DNR reports came out of how many birds are in the area, what percent are they up, and Brown County was up like 126%. <laughs> so it drew, it drew in a lot of attention, and people were out hunting all year round, and it was just a great place to be. So I want to get into your background, but you've touched on an important question for me. Brown County, so we're talking about Sleepy Eye, New Ulm, um, right to, to Lamberton, right? The edge of Redwood, Redwood Falls County or Redwood County. 
It does always, well, not always, but the last few years, it has um, emerged as a hot spot for the Minnesota DNR's pheasant counts. Um, yet, it's not, you know, it, as you head more towards southwest, Lyon County, Marshall, Minnesota, that area, um, that's sort of considered the hotbed of pheasant hunting in the state of Minnesota. Why is Brown County jumping up the last few years in terms of um, bird counts? Is it a matter of there's more habitat there or have they just struck it right with the weather or, you know, what's, what's the reason that Brown County, because as a person with a personal, you know, I, I've hunted it fairly regularly the last decade and there's more and more and more hunters heading to that particular county because of the Minnesota DNR counts. What's the cause behind that? Yeah, so there's a lot of public land in that area and uh, private lands. So if you want birds on public lands, you have to have private lands that have habitat because they contribute a lot to those public lands. And there's a lot of people enrolled in the CRP program and CREP in Minnesota is a big thing. And there's a lot of new crep acres going in constantly. And so it's drawing birds into these public areas. And man, I would go out last year and every single Minnesota public DNR spot was packed with people. And it was like, this is great to see. Um, so, and if I'm driving around, there's hens and, and roosters everywhere. And it's just exciting to see those numbers continue to climb. And um, it's drawing a lot of people. And, uh, so yeah, maybe, maybe we'll be the new hot spot for, for the long term and pull away from Lyon County and up by Marshall. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's just good to see people out enjoying the weather and mm -hmm. getting out with their families and hunting. And if we can put those high numbers out there and get people involved, it's a great thing, but it, it is, um, it was very noticeable across Southwest Minnesota, how many people utilize the public land and I, I think the Minnesota DNR I just saw an email that license sales or pheasant stamp sales were up 18 percent um, which is wonderful as well and I also think it is beneficial that there are more count like for a long time there was a hyper focus on Marshall in the surrounding you know Lyon County really and the more that you you see the numbers jump up you know, whether it's Murray County, um, you know, we, we mentioned Brown, Cottonwood. Um, oh, what are some of the other ones around there? Um, Pipestone, you know, the, the numbers, the counts that come up um, are distributing the hunting, the hunters a little bit better, I think. And, you know, there's, it, it's sort of not the best kept secret anymore. The fact <laughs> that Minnesota has a heck of a lot of public land wild birds. Yeah, it's continuing to evolve, and Cottonwood County down by St. James, it's drawing a lot of people, and mm -hmm. it's uh, it's really good to see. So I'm excited to be a part of it and watch the people come into our county and enjoy everything that they can. So as um, we arrived here, at in, it sounds better because we're in person today. <laughs> so um, thanks for coming in. This is your first visit uh, as an employee to the Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever National Headquarters. So tell us a, a little bit about your background and, and how you started working for the organization in kind of in unison with the pandemic. Yeah, so 
Um, I grew up in Belle Plaine, Minnesota, which is just south of the cities. And I, my land, I had 10 acres that was just bordering the Minnesota River Valley State Park. So Ooh. I would constantly go down there and call ducks and just learn how to to call ducks without shooting them because it was a state park. So just going down there constantly, taking hikes, enjoying nature. And that's kind of where I grew my passion of wildlife. And then I went to South Dakota State and for a wildlife and fisheries degree um, and graduated with that in four years. But I had a year of eligibility left for Division One wrestling. So I was like, wow, what do I do? Um, do I not wrestle my last year or do I go to grad school or do I just take classes? What do I do? So I had a professor reach out to me and she's like, Hey, we'll, we'll accept you on for a master's program. Hmm. Um, you can finish up your last year of wrestling eligibility. And this is at SDSU still. Yep. This is at South Dakota state. So, um, I was there for six or seven years, but, uh, it was a great time and, and I got my master's degree in well, this term heterogeneity is uh-huh. uh, really my main focus on my master's degree. Um, and then once I finished that in two years, I jumped on board with Pheasants Forever. Tanner Bruce gave me a call. He's like, yep, we'll, we'll hire you down in Brown County and Sleepy Eye. And uh, so then I started with the organization, and that was in November of 2019. And then... So that's during winter, and then two mm-hmm. months later, the pandemic hit. So sure. really haven't met anyone on the team besides a few people in the area. And uh, so it's good to finally be in the office here today and, and meet some of the... Right, all four of us that are here. <laughs> <laughs> Not many, but hey, it's some people. And We're used to working at home these days. So going to um, South Dakota State, Brookings, we have... There, there's so, sort of a couple universities where there's pods of Pheasants Forever employees that um, have went to school. And SDSU is one of them. Iowa State's another one. Um, you know, Stevens Point, you know, kind of your you know, quintessential biology schools, wildlife schools. And a lot of folks talk about Bemidji is another one that comes to mind. in yep. um, a lot of folks talk about when you go to some of these schools, it is the grew up love of the outdoors, hunting, fishing, and it's in a university where there's a wealth of opportunities to yes. enjoy it from both a, a, a schooling perspective, but also, let's call it field research. <laughs> Is that something you enjoyed at Brookings, that you were able to get out and, and fish and hunt while you were going to school? Yes, absolutely. I did a lot of bow hunting, a lot of duck hunting. Pheasant hunting was um, great in the area. And obviously on a Division One campus, there's a lot of people competing. So there's mm. people going out and and uh, spots are, you know, they're taken by people. But it was nice. I met a lot of people throughout my years there. So I had some private land to hunt. Huh. Um, I had some family in the area. So I did a lot of hunting and, and fishing. The fishing's great on some of those pothole lakes. And mm. um, it was just a great place to be. And the Wildlife and Fisheries Program when I was going to school there, it was one of the top in the country. And, you know, they, they brag when about... When you were going to school there, <laughs> you know, a long time ago. Was it 18 months ago? <laughs> yeah, not too long yeah. ago. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're not old enough to say it like that. I know, I know. I got I to gotta change that back. So, so when you're going to school 
and you're like, okay, let's let's go duck hunting this morning. And you go out, and there's people on the spots that you were intending to go. Are are they oftentimes people you knew from your same major, or is it is it broader than that? Like a lot of people go to SDSU that like legitimately loved to hunt and fish, and you know there were a lot of twenty year olds out hunting public land in and around the area. Yeah, a lot of people from different majors. Um, huh. Most were wildlife and fisheries students, but. Then you also had local residents too that, you know, that's been my spot for how many years? Uh-huh. How'd you find out about it? Well, it's public land <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> and, uh, no, it's, it's just, uh, but there is so many spots. So you would go scouting and you'd go, okay, here's a great spot. Let's pick an alternative. Cause there might be someone there. So mm-hmm. you'd do an extra hour of scouting, go find a spot that would be an alternative. So you'd have two spots and generally you'd get one or the other, mm-hmm. um, most of the time you'd get your, your first one, but during opener, during opener of duck hunting, people get up at, they go spend the night out there. They go out at midnight and they just sleep in the, the toolies, the cattails. And, um, so they have their spot locked down, mm. but there's so many ducks out there. And I mean, even if you get a, maybe not so hot spot, mm-hmm. you're probably still going to do very well. And, um, it's just a good place to be. And then when you're bringing home, you know, ducks, geese, pheasants, <laughs> a deer, um, I'm assuming that's a challenge when you're living in the dorm setting. Um, but I assumed at some point you moved off campus and that's, that became kind of the sus, the way you, you, you ate, right? Yep. Yep. And so if you got a limit of pheasants or ducks and you were in the dorms, you'd clean them in the parking lot and fold down your tailgate and... Mm is anyone coming? Is anyone coming? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then as, as you moved off campus, it became easier. And, mm-hmm. um, that, yeah, that's what we lived off of is wild game. And is that right? Yeah. Broke college students. And if we could find, uh, a meal here and there from something that we harvested, it was mm. pretty awesome to, to do. That is, I, you know, you hear, um, I immediately think about, um, Stephen Ranello's podcast, Meat Eater, and he talks about, you know, his days going to school at Lake State and Sault Ste. Marie and how they fished and hunted and, and lived off campus. And that's, you know, you get a chest freezer and that's what you, you know, you don't eat McDonald's as a college kid, you eat, <laughs> right? You eat uh, steelhead and, and um, uh, whitetail and, and yeah. rough grouse and, you know, when you're living in Lake State. So it's it's fun to hear that similar experience when you're at Brook. I mean, hopefully, if you're going to school in South Dakota, you take advantage of being in the, the pheasant capital of the country. Yeah. And, and what, what about dogs? Did you have a dog from a, when you lived off campus? We did not have a dog, but a lot of people did. And um, I wish we did. I mean, that would be a, a great companion. We were just so busy with um, wrestling that we couldn't really, if we were gone for a weekend, we couldn't have a dog. Otherwise it'd probably tear up the house. I want listeners to, to take note of the fact that, um, Luke said they were so busy with wrestling while he was at school. He did not say he was so busy with his studies. He said he was so busy with wrestling that a dog would get in the way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's, a, that's great. Um, but the, the nice part about eating wild game is it's so lean. Mm-hmm. And so as a wrestler, you're always cutting weight. And, um, <laughs> so it avoided us going to McDonald's. How and, do you like that logic? That yeah. makes sense. Yep. So we were eating clean, healthy, good meat. And um, 
it avoided all that extra weight that we had to carry on. So, okay, you're, you're going to school. So you knew when you picked SDSU, I'm assuming you knew you wanted to go into biology and be a biologist, right? Yep. What, what, was, your, what was your projection for the kind of job you wanted? Man, I had no idea. Um, I just knew I loved hunting and fishing, and I was like, will I work for the DNR? Will I work for someone else? I didn't really know about nonprofits. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I think they're one of the best organizations to be with is they're so passionate. And uh, But going into the, you know, four years of wildlife and fisheries degree, um, you start learning about all the different ways you can go. You can be a park manager. Mm -hmm. You can be you know, technician, you could do research, you can be a professor, and mm -hmm. there's just so many different avenues to go. Um, I'm glad I went the, the nonprofit route with mm. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever, um, as I think they're, like I said, again, so passionate. And um, so, yeah, if, if uh, and it's a great job out of school, these farm bill biologists, if, you know, someone's graduating with a degree, a wildlife and fisheries degree, hop into one of these farm bill biologist jobs and mm -hmm. you know they're fun you're out in the field you're meeting landowners you're enrolling private voluntary land on the ground and adding habitat and um it's just a a great organization to be a part of and um i'm glad i'm here so you're done with four years your undergrad and you got a year of college eligibility left to wrestle and then the I think the the offer right comes from the professor to have you do your master's and work with her on a particular project. So tell me about how how that proposition came to be and how the the project was laid out before you. Yeah. So it was funny. We were we were actually talking in the greenhouse, um, and she came up to me and. It was re really brief. She came up and goes, yeah, I got a project working cottonwoods. And I'm like, oh, okay. And she kind of went off and I got back to my house. I'm like, cottonwoods, I'm working with cottonwood trees. That'll be fun. Um, and then, so the next time I met with her, I'm like, okay, so where, where are the cottonwood trees we're going to be sampling? And she goes, no, we're in Cottonwood, South Dakota. And mm. I'm like, oh, where's that? She's like, oh, it's West River, um, population of nine people. Hmm. So we were out there for a couple of summers. So for folks that aren't familiar with South Dakota geography, West River is west of the Missouri River. So from Brookings, that's a good three hours, right? Yeah, it was about four, four and a half to Cottonwood. And when it, it is a lot of folks that have crossed back and forth the Missouri River in South Dakota know this. But if you haven't, it's a dramatic climate shift which ultimately is a dramatic landscape shift between east river and west river right yep yep so yeah the east river in that brookings area is more of that tall grass prairie and then where i was doing my research was the mixed grass prairie drier climates shorter vegetation mix of that short grass tall or short grass and mixed grass and very few um, tall grasses and as soon as you cross that river you start seeing antelope and and just mm. different species so grouse you're starting to see sharp tails prairie chickens and um so it was uh yeah i was in cottonwood south dakota population of nine people so when i was out there we me and my friend who's actually working with quail forever now 
we made the population 11. So (laughs) 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 really jumped it up. And um, so shout out to the professor. What's her name? Dr. Shulan. Yes. She's a sweetheart. Um, Very focused on ecology and plant ecology. And uh, she's a wonderful woman and, and does a great job at SDSU. And the biologist you worked with, who is now a uh, farm bill biologist with Quail Forever, is? Jake Comer. Yep. He's in North Carolina with Quail Forever, um, working in the longleaf pine savanna, focusing on bobwhite habitat. And um, yeah, so that's where he was from originally. So he went back home. Oh, he was originally from Carolina. Huh? Yep. Okay. So, so you both end up West River and now most master's projects, right? There's a some, a theory, right, or a hypothesis you're trying to prove out. Is yep. that accurate? Yep. So what what is the, the professor's um, hypothesis that you're gonna you're gonna research here? Yes. Yeah, so in once you cross that river, um, the fire suppression, we there used to be prescribed fires and wildfires and that's been suppressed over time. So there's been this research on patch burn grazing to create this structural heterogeneity of you have a fire and then you rotate cattle and it creates different structure. While in Western South Dakota, there's fire suppression and people don't want to use fire due to multiple reasons, but you know, they're concerned with Mm -hmm. what it could do to their landscape. And so we created or thought of this idea of winter patch grazing. So heavy grazing during the winter time. Mm. Um, so heavier stocking rates of livestock to simulate a wild or not a wildfire, a prescribed burn. Okay. And then we set it up on a rotation. Mm. So it'd be winter patch grazing. There'd be a head of cattle in this pasture grazing heavy. And then the next year they rotate and it created that vegetation structure throughout the landscape. Okay. So you're doing things with your hands that (laughs) folks can't see. (laughs) So let's, let's break down, put in your own words, heterogeneity, what that is, because you've, you've talked about structure, right? So explain in your own words, without looking at Webster's definition of it, (laughs) um, what this word means, because it's hard to pronounce, period. Yeah. So um, break it down for us so we understand what what the word means and how it's going to benefit wildlife. Yep. So this heterogeneity, um, it's having dissimilarities on the landscape that are not uniform. Um, so having differences in litter cover, bare ground in some areas. It's having different vegetation heights, which creates that structure. So... If you have bare ground in one area and short vegetation in one pasture, and then the next pasture you have, you know, 12 inches of vegetation, and then the next one you have 18 inches of vegetation, that Mm. creates this structure, this difference. So it attracts different species to that bare ground area, different Mm. grassland birds, different insects, versus that taller vegetation is going to attract a different set of species, um, ultimately improving wildlife habitat in a huge scale. And uh, so then there's structural heterogeneity, which is what I just talked about, having that structure, different bare ground, short vegetation, mid-sized vegetation, um, just throughout the landscape. And then there's compositional heterogeneity, which would be looking at individual species, 
though. So individual species of plants. Individual species of plants. Mm-hmm. Yes, correct. Um, so you'd have different life forms. You'd have shrubs and forbs and warm season, cool season grasses. Legumes. Sh- legumes. Yes, tall and short. And so uh, there's a really good chart, and USDA NRCS has a, a good graphic of it where there's about 30 different plants lined up. There's forbs and grasses, and there's they're just showing the difference in heights above ground and below ground with the root system. Hmm. And that also creates structural heterogeneity by having different species that would have different vegetation heights. It creates the structure as well. So hmm. having, yeah, just different life forms, different annuals, perennials, and just having this diversity, this species richness on the landscape um, that's even throughout. So you could have heterogeneity. So during our research, we were looking at quarter meter plots for our sampling method. Um, and we could have 30 different species in this quarter meter, mm-hmm. but then you could look up at the landscape and there could be one species. So we don't want that. We want diversity throughout and evenness and richness. And then it creates that structure when you had different species and the way you manage it, um, with fire and grazing and mowing and disking. So, um, so for a long time, um, grassland managers have talked about the need to oh, sort of um, mimic what bison and thunderstorms, right? Like yep. creating wildfires to, to mimic that across the grasslands because in the absence of bison, use cattle. In the absence of wildfires and created by thunderstorms, use prescribed fire. So so folks have talked about this concept for a long time. What's different about heterogeneity um, in from from where we were say two decades ago to to where this thought process is today? Because it, you know, the word I hadn't heard <laughs> of, right? I mean, I, I have a hard time pronouncing it because when you read it, you know, it's like, it's not necessarily intuitive, at least the second half of the syllables. Yeah. Um, so it, is this a new concept or is it an evolution? It seems like it's an evolution of an old concept. Yeah. It's just been passed along through time. And, you know, you talked about the bison grazing on the plains. So they were free ranging. They didn't have pastures. They weren't in electric fences. They were free ranging animals that could have vast amount of prairie to graze from and browse. So they would follow these lightning strikes, these wildflowers, or if they were planned intentionally, they would follow these patterns and graze in the recently burned areas because they, after, after a fire or a recent burn, that grass comes up early, it's Mm -hmm. lush, it's high and nutritious. Um, So these bison are following those patterns and it creates these patches along the landscape, this mm. mosaic mm-hmm. of habitat. And so now, since European settlement, we have this, you know, we have livestock managed in pastures where they're maximized for livestock production. So that is what they're out there for. Uh, they graze as much as they can during the growing season, and it creates this homogenous landscape. Okay. So. This is where the idea of that. And when you say homogenous landscape for folks, what you're talking about, it, it may be even a good plant, right? Like little blue stem, yep. which is great, but it's not great when that's the only thing in a section. 
right? I mean, that's that's what you're talking about with homogenous, correct? Yep, yep. So we're trying to get that heterogeneity, that diversity, mm. high species richness. Um, and so these homogenous landscapes are one species, one or two species that's dominating. So it's, yeah, it's beneficial to livestock. That's great, nutritious grasses, but you know, is it providing for the wildlife as well? Is it attracting a couple species of insects? Or if you had 50 different species of forbs, is it bringing in 50 different insects? And that's bringing in more grassland birds. That's bringing in predators. That's creating this, you know, that life cycle where you have the top to bottom predators to prey. And that's what these ecosystems need. Gotcha. So we go from patch burn grazing is what they're trying to do down in Kansas and you know the the tall grass prairie um the flint hills mm. um so they're doing this patch burn grazing where they're creating the structure they're bringing in diversity it's attracting it's great for the livestock and mm. it's great for sharp the wildlife tails. the sharp tails the grouse the pheasants the insects the pollinators the monarchs so um it's great for that and then so in this western South Dakota, this mixed grass prairie, where there's prairie checks and sharp tails, we were trying to, you know, find a different method that we could not use fire and create that structure, the heterogeneity, mm. um, the compositional heterogeneity. So what it feels like, or it sounds like, so mimicking bison in in wildfire lightning strikes, there was an evolution, like, we would do that as habitat managers on a sectional basis, right? Like you do a prescribed burn on a section here and then the next year be the section over there and you'd be creating diversity, but it would be like big chunks at a time. What it sounds like to me, and you correct me, with this theory or concept of heterogeneity, it's even trying to boil that down into smaller patches um, within sections. So you have, you know... you remove where applicable, you remove the fences so the cattle can eat the plants that they want rather than focused in a smaller area. So then it creates, as you mentioned, structure, the vertical height of plants that that's diverse, right? Yes. So because you have some birds that want it really short or at some certain times of the year they need it really short brooding right yep. so the chicks can move through open space but then also they need in very close proximity taller grass to protect them from avian predation right so if you it, while it's better to do a prescribed burn with a big block right because it's going to release the natives and and start um kind of fresh right? Mm-hmm. It releases diversity. Yep. But you do have the limitation of, well, to get from brood cover to food to winter cover, well, then we are talking about a, a longer distance for our favorite wildlife species. Bobwhite quail, I think about in particular, you know, they live out their whole life in, you know, maybe a two-mile radius. Yep. So if you can do this, what you're talking about, patch burn, patch burning or you know more um grazing in a different manner where the the cattle are eating portions but not the entirety of a section that's beneficial to pheasants and quail do i have that accurate yeah absolutely and it is challenging because 
You know, we we don't have those vast amounts of prairie, the grasslands. Mm -hmm. We're limited to a certain area because of conversion to agriculture. There's row crops. So we we don't have as many grasslands. What is there, 1% left of our tall grass prairie? Mm -hmm. So we're, I mean, we're limited in the way we can manage, but let's say you have 30 acres and let's set up a rotation, split that into 10 acres each. And, you know, it might not be a hundred acres that you want, but it's, it's still something. And 30 acres is, it provides cover and it provides habitat for a lot of different birds mm. and insects. So, um, we are limited, but it can be done. And, um, you mentioned Bob whites and, um, I'll give a little shout out to Eric Russell. He's a farm bill biologist in, in South East Minnesota down in Caledonia. And he wanted to, he wanted to make sure I said, there is bobwhite quail in Minnesota. So for people that don't think there's there's quail in Minnesota, there is in the southeast portion. And uh, he just talked about how, you know, pheasants are more of this open species. They want vast amounts of grasslands. Mm-hmm. And he goes, quail are birds on the edges. Mm-hmm. So they like to think of it as the apartment approach where there's brood habitat, where there's high forbs and bare soil. There's nesting cover litter accumulation there's bunch grasses of drop seed and mm. and other bunch grasses and then there's cover for invading predators where there's diverse shrubs the dogwoods the wild plum the sagebrush in the western part of this country and then there's brambles and then there's dusting cover for their wings and to dust their feathers and and then there's this covey headquarters which he talked about which is it basically includes everything so there's dense shrubby cover there's little vegetation there's bare soil um, there's edge feathering Uh, so having that heterogeneity of shrubs and grasses Mm. short vegetation and you talked about quail every two miles or that's all they travel right right so they need all this in a short area and and a small area so if we can provide that heterogeneity for not only wide open areas of grasslands but also for this this quail logic of, you know, we need it in this two mile radius. We need a lot of heterogeneity of different things. Mm-hmm. We need forest heterogeneity. We need mm. soil microbes. We need dusting cover. And, um, that's in Minnesota. And then you go out to North Carolina where my, my buddy is Jake Comer and he's in the Longleaf pine Savannah. So completely different management, different, uh, ways to, to manage for these quail and his focus on management is burning the understory of the savanna and creating heterogeneity on this understory and then if your your pines become too thick you need to thin those out mm-hmm. and um so different management but same philosophy but same philosophy right? yeah heterogeneity heterogeneity yes. and, and i think about you know back to where you closer to where you did your research um, I think about the Fort Pierre grasslands, right? And, and a lot of our national grasslands were managed by the U.S. Forest Service, but they're employing a lot of these strategies through cattle and rotational grazing um, already, right? At, at least on a on a micro scale, because they they do move cattle around in a very deliberate manner, and while they're they are fenced in, a lot of the times they're in areas bigger than sections. So it does, I mean, as a, as a visual example of where I've seen it 
play out as a bird hunter. Yeah. You know, you can, you can identify, you know, where, where, where you find sharp tails and prairie chickens in, in Fort Pierre. It's like, there's a certain, um, kind of, kind of mixture in the grasslands that you're looking for, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So management is a huge component to create this heterogeneity. So, um, we talked about public lands and public lands. I mean, yeah, we can add as many public lands or as much public land as we want, but it needs to be managed and kept up to create and, and maintain this heterogeneity. So, um, I know some people weren't in favor of this last year, but I thought it was a great approach in Minnesota is they opened up this public lands for landowners, private landowners to come graze. And, Hmm. um, some people were concerned because it took away hunting habitat and, but in the long term, that's going to be much better. It's going to create that diversity. It's going to create, um, so the vegetation that we see today is resilient to disturbance. It, it has adapted over time and as ecological succession has adapted to grazing and fire. Right. So, so if we add that back on the landscape, it's going to create the vegetation we want where there's high forbs, high wildflowers, um, mixed grasses. And, um, so I personally thought that was one so of what, the best things for what you're referring to is, um, Minnesota DNR allowed some, private ranchers to graze cattle as a habitat management tool on WMAs, right? Yeah. Public wildlife areas. Um, where some of the pushback has come is, well, that, you know, those cattle graze down habitat on public areas where people hunt. So time of year tends to be important for when that occurs, right? Yep. So if you were to prescribe like how that could be best done from a habitat perspective, but then also from a public use perspective, where when would the best time be to have those cattle in public areas? I mean, you can have them out there year round. Let's set them on a rotation and let's say we have a hypothetical 100 acre field Let's split that off into 25 acres, graze that this year, graze the next this year. Then the landowner or the hunter still has 75 acres to hunt. That's a majority of the, the field. So then it creates that rotation, and then hmm. um, it brings back that historic three to five years of you know fire intervals or, or bringing back this historic regime of grazing and fire. And, I mean, if – if you had, let's say, 20 acres, <clears throat> split it into 10 mm-hmm. and graze it, you know, early season, let it go. And then the second half you could graze after the pheasant season and do a late graze for those ones. So there is ways to make this happen, and it's constant monitoring. So you need to go out and make sure um, we talk about in the science world this intermediate disturbance hypothesis so we're taking half of the vegetation, but we're leaving half. Mm. So we don't want to graze it till there's bare ground and there's right. absolutely no habitat left. If you take half of it, that's still plenty of cover for the birds. And um, and then you set it on a rotation. So you have medium vegetation height. And then in the next pasture or the paddock, you have taller vegetation height. Sure. Well, and it, it goes to, you know, one of the the flip criticisms, right, is, well, you go to these public areas and all it is is sprome, mm-hmm. right? And 
any bird hunter can tell you, like, you might flush one or two birds over a season in Brome, but you don't see a whole lot. Because Brome just is, I mean, it, it has a tendency to take over an area, right? And it becomes homogenous right and yep. uh, and it's it doesn't provide there's some limited benefits to brome for spring nesting and then the benefits deteriorate dramatically right mm-hmm. so if we want to get those wildlife areas those public wildlife areas to hold more birds produce more birds hold more birds and winter more birds we got to do something to manage those homogenous brome wildlife areas right and and cattle through rotational grazing is a tool in the toolbox to make that happen yeah yeah brome is so competitive and um i i talked about earlier the more land you add well that's more you have to manage and keep up with and Mm. it costs money so private landowners well this gives them an opportunity to take advantage of a public resource and if it's done correctly. Right. That's the key. Right? Yes. If it's done correctly, it is crucial and a critical habitat tool that we can have in the toolbox. And so we have stands of smooth brome that you talked about. That's a competitive species. That's not, you can graze it or burn it one year. It's going to come back the next year. So it's going to, it's going to take three, four, five years of management to get that done. Well, public lands, let's say, you have a field and you you plan on managing that one this year well then you have to take care of all the other acreages of public land before you come back to that one hmm. so if you have these landowners private landowners that are hey let's sign a contract i'll properly manage it will be beneficial and maybe we can see that brome turn into a heterogeneous landscape where there's more diversity more forbs you just dropped another word on, on me heterogeneous heterogeneous <laughs> it probably came out wrong heterogeneous yeah heterogene- no, that's right yeah heterogeneous landscape yeah so all right so let's let's um boil this down for what's in it for the pub the public bird hunter right yep so you've talked about from a science perspective structural heterogeneity diversity of heterogeneous landscape, right? (laughs) Different plants providing different benefits, right? Some plants provide food. Some plants are better for nesting cover. Some plants are better for winter cover, right? And the more the diverse landscape you can have without, you know, part of it is, you know, you can plant, right? Mm -hmm. Through seeding mixes, you can plant a heterogeneous landscape. But that's an expensive way of going about things, mm-hmm. right? And you have limited opportunity to do that. So what you've talked about is managing land through fire and ra- grazing, which naturally releases the seed bank that's already in the soil. Do I have this correct? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So um, how? explain, just boil it down for birds. How, like how impactful can this be for bird numbers do you see it when you were doing your research did you study bird response on the landscape and can you put that into any sort of statistical framework for us yes absolutely and i brought along a couple charts to depict this <laughs> this actually. is a podcast how are but, we gonna see <laughs> but they can't see it so I i'm know, gonna I'm explain it as much as possible 
and yes, on our on our research project, we had we did have a graduate student doing bird responses to this winter patch grazing, and we found it. You know, the bare ground after that winter patch grazing attracts a different species of birds. It attracts killdeer and mm. songbirds that wouldn't you wouldn't see on the taller vegetation. So these charts that I'm going to explain are just publications in the science world. Um, the first one's by Knopf in 1996, and he looked at different stocking rates and the effects of um, grassland birds' response. So he had excessive stocking rates, heavy excessive stocking rates, created that bare ground, which we were trying to create with that winter patch grazing. Mm-hmm. Well, that attracted three different species of birds, of of grassland-dependent birds, and then as the scale went, you went from excessive heavy to moderate. So this intermediate disturbance hypothesis, take half, leave half, that attracted six species, but they were different species than the excessive grazing. Hmm. And then you went to the light grazing, the light stocking rates of livestock versus maybe no stocking rate, where we get to taller vegetation, maybe some mixed shrubby area, and we had three different species using that that were different than the other hmm. categories. So, and it's the same with this fire one I had to have is by Toombs et al. in 2010. He looked at the response and succession of fire. So zero months after fire, all the way up to 36 months, three years. And it was the same thing. We had the bare ground attracted three different species than the 12 months, the 24 months, and the 36 months. The taller vegetation attracted different birds than the bare ground. So that is where creating that structural heterogeneity for birds is so important because if you have bare ground, it provides chicks. You can run freely without getting caught in that standing dead, the litter. Right. So let's (laughs) talk about that just for a second because you and I understand um, what that means for chicks. But think about a bobwhite quail which a chick is, let's say, the size of your thumb, yep. right? So if if a piece of ground has not been managed either through grazing or fire, just think about how dense that grass is at the soil level, right? Mm-hmm. For a bird the size of your thumb or pheasant will even a little bit bigger, it's like, uh, the tough mutter. Yeah. Every moment <laughs> of that bird's life, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when, uh, particularly, as you mentioned, brood cover, not only for moving around, but also that bear, so, so they need bare ground for brood cover to move around, right? Mm-hmm. So it's easier. But that bare ground also influences the type of plants particularly forbs, right, that produce insects. Yep. Which also provides, so A, the birds can move, but B, it's providing something for them to eat, right? Yes, absolutely. They're reliant on, what is it, 90% of their diet in the first week of their life is Mm. soft-bodied insects. Right. So if we have that bare soil, it's going to allow the sunlight to reach the seed bank, to germinate more forbs, attracting insects. Now these quail chicks these pheasant chicks these duck chicks are feeding off that and they're also having 
the ability to run through and weave through these tall grasses, these mixed grasses, mm. without getting caught in, let's say, a smooth brome stand or a Kentucky bluegrass. Mm-hmm. If any of the listeners know what Kentucky bluegrass is, it's a well, it's what you have on your lawn. Right. Most people have it in their lawn. Or as you move south, you know, uh, in the quail range, fescue. Yes. Or bahia grass. Yep. It's very flimsy, and it falls over and creates this buildup of litter and standing dead that these tri- these chicks just really can't run through without mm. getting caught up. Like you said, the tough mutter. Mm-hmm. Tough mutter for these little birds. They can't, they can't get through. <laughs> Everything except for the electrical uh, pool that you have to swim through. Everything else is just like the tough mutter. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's on one spectrum as we have this bare ground. But we also need nesting cover. That really doesn't provide nesting cover for these birds, hmm. this bare ground. So now we go to this, maybe this pasture, this paddock, if we're doing a grazing operation that hasn't been grazed in three years. Well, now there's bunch grasses, tall drop seed, sand drop seed, and um, that's providing nesting cover for bob whites and pheasants and, and sharp tails and hmm. uh, prairie chickens. They need these bunch grasses to lay their nests and, mm-hmm. and they need litter mm-hmm. to, to build their nests. So that's why it's so important uh, to have these different components, this heterogeneous landscape that provides multiple resources for mm. our birds and in an organization that's focused on, you know, upland hunting. That's what we need is we need um, habitat for these, these birds, these chicks from all stages of life. So we, we've talked a fair bit about public lands and, you know, how here in the state of Minnesota, the DNR last year used cattle to help um, create this heterogeneous type of landscape on these public lands. You're a farm bill biologist. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're working primarily with private landowners through conservation, conservation programs, both at the federal level. So USDA programs, Farm Bill programs, CRP, um, Equip, and the like, right? Yep. Equip's probably part of your vernacular if, if uh, we're talking about grazing. But you're also using state programs, right? RIM and CREP. And, yep. Um, so tell us about, and I'm immediately thinking about CRP mid-contract management. Um, but you, you can get to that as you wish. Tell us about influencing heterogeneity on a private landowner's property how pheasants forever you in particular in brown county can help a private landowner influence their land as habitat for pheasants in the heart of minnesota's pheasant range yeah and so i talked earlier about having private lands is a huge factor to contribute birds to public lands. So how we manage these private lands is so important. It's critical. And um, if they're tied to these programs, let's say CRP, it's a 10 to 15-year program. So they, let's say they're doing a 15-year, they're only required one management practice throughout this 15 years, Mm. which is year seven. Well, if you plant a very high diverse mix, you spend a bunch of money on seed, but then you do nothing to manage it for seven years, well, that's when your smooth brome starts to come in. That's when these noxious species um, begin to establish. So, so like year three to five is prime time, right? 
prime is d- diversity and lots of birds, but then it deteriorates. Yep. Yep. So it's, it's tough with these private landowners because they have to fork out the money mm. for mid contract management. They have to fork out the money to hire someone to do a prescribed burn. And, and that's tough because they have to make a living. Right. Yep. So all I can do really is just, you know, here are the facts here. Here is what would happen if you, you know, let's, let's do a burn every three to five years. I know it's on your own cost, but, um, this is the reality of it and it's going to promote this heterogeneous landscape. Well, um, some, some landowners are just gung ho. They're Mm. like, absolutely. I am a huge pheasant hunter. I am a huge quail hunter. Uh, let's let's do as much management as possible um without doing too much because you never want to do too much mm-hmm. otherwise it'll um overgrazing or, or something right. so some people are gung-ho but others you know hey i only want to do that one midterm management well sometimes the reality is when that contract expires and it's now a smooth brome stand they're going to have to spend more money to come back through to reseed it to get it to qualify for the program so yes it might cost them more um In and this is easy term. for me to say because sure, i sure. don't have land yet at my age but uh they don't have you know they they put more up in the contract length but at the end of the year or at the end of the contract if they don't manage then they're going to be forking out hmm. more money for seed and then there's no cost share because they're it's supposed to already be diverse. So is there, so I, this gets to the heart of a lot of times there's, um, well, not a lot of time, but it comes up emergency hanging and grazing, right? When there's a drought or, or something, this is, uh, generally speaking, a, a practice that Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever supports because in a time when there's emergency haying and grazing, it does effectively manage some of these CRP stands um, by promoting a heterogeneous landscape while benefiting the landowner at the same time. Is it an accurate statement? Yeah. So haying is great, right? If you if you go out and mow your your land as a management practice well then the clippings are dispersed and it suppresses that seed bank well if you can go out and hay that and get that off of there then you're mowing but then you're taking away that that litter that uh mm-hmm. that clipping that right. would be suppressed so then the seed bank can germinate and come up um and grazing yes it's and i just found out you can use grazing as a mid-contract management and so there are restrictions to this um, so talk to your local farm bill biologist or your NRCS staff because there's payment reductions and um, sometimes you can't sell the bales on your own to make a profit. Mm. Um, but it is possible and you can do it. So, yeah, get a hold of your farm bill biologist and they can help you out and go through a plan and, and help you put it into your contract where you, you can hay and graze. And it, Does it ever happen where, say, a private landowner enrolled in CRP – um, and they they're really in tune with wanton wildlife, particularly mm-hmm. quail or pheasants on their property. Um, but they don't they don't have cattle. Is there a <laughs> a match dot com <laughs> for private landowners 
that want some cattle on their CRP, but they don't own them themselves to to do mid-contract management and provide some of that forage for somebody else's cattle? Yeah, I've had people come in and say, I don't have cattle myself, but my neighbor has some livestock, and um, what are the odds we could get them on there? Mm. And yes, absolutely, work that out with your with your neighbor and um, figure out, you know, hey, this is how many head you have. You're going to have to go do forage estimates. So you have to come up with a grazing plan to be part of these CRP programs. So you have to do that in conjunction with your local USDA service center, right? To, yep. To get a kind of approval to do that as a CRP mid-contract management practice? Yep, yep. You'll work with the state grazing specialist. You'll come up with the plan. Um, Myself or one of the NRCS staff would go out and do forage estimations, see how much biomass is out there. Is there cool season or warm season? Hmm. Then you can determine your stocking rate, um, how many head you can have of, of cattle uh, or whatever you're grazing with. Yeah. And uh, then you can keep going down. And in these programs, you're, you are required to avoid the nesting season. Mm-hmm. So whether you're grazing early and nesting on, season for folks is when? In our area in Minnesota, yeah. it's uh, May 15th through August 1st. Uh, I thought it would be April 15th, right? Or is it for because uh, you can't go on WMAs beginning April 16th? Or is that that's not necessarily the, the case for private lands? I think it's May 15th. Uh, I'll have to go back and check because I'm on the spot now. But <laughs> no. it, could, it could be April 15th. But yeah, I think right. it's May to to august 1st okay um you're right you're for sure right on the back end i'm for sure right on the back end now you got me questioning the front end so it might be april 1st april um, um i just april 15th. april 15th is the last day in in our part of the world minnesota where you can have uh, a dog on public lands so april 16th you can't anymore for nesting season so it might be different on private lands i don't know the answer to that because i don't own any private yeah land. yeah um well, I should know it since I'm a farm bill biologist, but now you're making me second guess myself. So it, it's either April 15th or May 15th to August 1st mm-hmm. um, is this nesting season. And so if you're going to have a grazing plant it, and you're tied to a CRP or a, a CREP program, then you are required to avoid that nesting season. So you can go graze after August 1st until it snows. And um, mm-hmm. although the grasses may not be as nutritious because they're at the end of their cycle it's still going to provide a resource and um, it'll be critical management to create this heterogeneous landscape um it, what have we missed in talking about heterogeneity that you want to make sure that folks know um as we as we start to close up this segment or have we done a good job of covering everything yeah um we've covered a lot you know management is is a key component to create this heterogeneous landscapes. And um, the way you start your contract, the more diversity you have at the beginning, the more investment you put into seed. Um, If you're going to invest a lot of money in seed, then let's take the time and manage it properly. Uh, I know the DNR puts a lot of money into seed and on PF acquisitions, we're putting a lot of money into the seed mix. So um, if we can keep that up and manage it, and um, we're gonna we're gonna create more habitat for birds all over the country. This is not just for Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, these heterogeneous landscapes are everywhere. 
you need heterogeneity not only above ground, you need it below ground too. So um, I'm no soil expert, but I know the more soil microbes you have, the more bacteria, the funguses below ground, the more you're going to have above ground. So more heterogeneity below ground equals more heterogeneity above ground. Hmm. So proper management creates that. And then the soil interacts with the plants and everybody's happy. Um, it creates this this ecosystem that provides so many ecosystem services, which we'll bring it back to, which is one of the mm-hmm. first words you said is providing clean water, soil retention, flood control. It provides so many ecosystem services by properly managing and, and creating these grasslands um, that provides it, cleaner drinking water. Including more pheasants. Including more pheasants. Quail, prairie grouse, things we love. Yep, absolutely. If folks want to uh, learn more, talk to you specifically, how do they reach out to you? Yeah, you can uh, get a hold of me through email. Um, you can call my office, which is 507-794-7997. Uh, my extension is 110. Um, and yeah, get a hold of me. Send your, me an email. Your email address is? This is a long one. L Z I L V E R B E R G at pheasantsforever.com. Dot org. Dot org. Yeah, dot org. <laughs> yeah, so L, Z is in zebra, I L, V is in Victor, E R, B is in boy, E R, G is in girl at pheasantsforever.org. <laughs> Excellent. Luke, it's been a real fun conversation. Thanks for taking the time to come up here and, and visit with me. And and uh, educate me on heterogeneity. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was good to finally get up to to the St. Paul area and visit the national office and you, Bob. <laughs> so thanks for having me. And, um, yeah, if you guys have questions, give me a, give me a shout. Awesome. Uh, that was our featured heterogeneitous guest <laughs> uh luke silverberg uh, a relatively new biologist with pheasants forever and quail forever um thanks so much to luke thank you for listening to this episode of pheasants forever and quail forever's on the wing podcast if you are not yet a member we could use you more than ever please consider joining the the habitat organization at pheasantsforever.org or at quailforever.org, or both. Uh, I'm Bob St. Pierre, reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks for listening, folks.